Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. As a church, um, as a church, we've been walking, we just started a short Advent series last week on faith, hope, and love. And uh, we figured this was a great time to do it uh, because this time of year, Christmas, is uh, Advent, is a time where we reflect on the coming of our Lord. In fact, it's the coming of our Lord, uh, the person of Jesus Christ that is at the center of uh, the Scripture and at the center of what we believe as Christians, that Christ took on flesh and became one of us. And so it's always this time of year that I get a little bit giddy and excited, not just because I get to give gifts, but because we get to look forward to the coming of Christ, and we get to sing good Christmas hymns that people stare at you strange if you listen to them the rest of the time of year, and my heart grows three times its size. It is uh, my, one of my favorite times of year for my own personal spiritual walk. I was, uh, whenever I'm starting out, whenever I'm starting out, uh, the, this time of year, I will start reading a new uh, one of the four Gospels, and um, it's just a time that's particularly refreshing for me spiritually and encouraging, and it strengthens my faith, and it um, grows, uh, grows me in my affection and my love for Christ. And, and yet, it's also a time of year where often the, the question of whether or not uh, Christians should believe what we believe is, is heightened, and, and the whole idea of faith is sometimes called into question. So, for example, a man named Sam Harris, who's an atheist, a humanist, um, uh, questions the validity of Christian belief this way. He says, it is, of course, taboo to criticize a person's religious beliefs. The problem, however, is that much of what people believe in the name of religion is intrinsically divisive, unreasonable, and incompatible with genuine morality. One of the worst things about religion is that it tends to separate questions of right and wrong from the, reality, from the living reality of human and animal suffering. Consequently, religious people will devote, themselves, or will devote immense energy to so-called moral problems where no real suffering is at issue, and they will happily contribute to the surplus of human misery if it serves their religious beliefs. Essentially, what uh, Sam Harris is, is saying is, was said long ago is, all you need is love. Why do we really need to spend time talking about faith? Why, is, uh, wh- why do you have to spend time talking and, and thinking about what it is that you believe and why you believe it and what it does for you? Can't we just all love one another? Can't we get along? And maybe some of you are you're knowing that faith is before hope, is before love, and you're really looking forward to that last sermon in this series. Love, why, do we have to, why can't we just hopscotch there? Why do we have to spend time talking about faith? And I would, I would contend, I, I would contend that there's nothing that you and I do which doesn't require some level of faith. You can't escape from the question of faith. Faith is what we believe and why we believe, and what it does for us is absolutely essential to functional uh, reality. So let me uh, let me explain it this way. If we were to say, if we were to define what is faith, I would say faith is what you assume to be true, what you, the things that you assume to be true, so that you can trust in them. So, so faith is what you assume to be true, so that you can trust in them. And the reality is, life is too complex to think through rationally, on the basis of reason, every decision that you make. Let me give you an example. Um, when I drive somewhere, and I run out of gas, here's what I do. I put a piece of plastic into an, a machine and then I press some buttons, and out comes this liquid that costs me more than it should, and it goes into my car, and I 
And when I'm done giving them plastic and somehow that's money that I've never been seen being transferred from me to somebody else. And then I get in my car and I, I turn the key and the, the car goes vroom. And I'm not a car guy, so I don't know why it goes vroom. I don't know why the money gets transferred from one place to the next. I just know that it does. I just know that it gets me from A to B. I, I don't think I'm living in a, a fictional reality, but I, I just know that it does. I don't know why it does that. I just know that it does. Another example is when I was writing this sermon, I was using my computer. And for the life of me, I couldn't tell you what happens in the computer machine while I'm doing it. I just know that it displays numbers and digits and stuff on a screen. I don't know why it is that when my son dumps tea on it, it fries. I don't, I don't know what that, I don't know why that is. I just know that it is. The, the reality is most of our lives, uh, most of the things that we do um, are based on faith. We just assume these things are going to work, and we trust that they will, and so we act on that trust. Um, when, when I uh, sit down in that chair, I'm trusting, I'm assuming that it can hold my weight and that it will hold my weight, and therefore I, I, I trust it, I have faith in it. This maybe seems a little bit simplistic, but I promise you it's not. Uh, uh, the philosopher of science, a man named Michael Polanyi, I think that's how you pronounce his name in the last century, um, uh, he, he argued that even scientific knowledge, even things that come out of the scientific process, are based on faith. You believe that the scientific process is going to work. You believe that there's these pre- you have these presuppositions that that scientific uh, results will will yield a um, will yield a genuine result. That, that even scientific knowledge is based to some degree on faith, and so. Maybe some, if maybe Sam Harris or somebody who believes the same things as he does would say, "See, Matt, you're just being irrational. You're you're you know building your life on faith." And I would say, "I'm not being irrational. I'm just not being insane, because I just don't have enough time in the day to to think through every decision that I'm going to make. I have to trust that there, some things are true, and I have to act on them. I have to have faith at some level. I think the real question." is not, do you have faith, but who do you have faith in? I think that's the real question. Not, who do you have, uh, not do you have faith, but who or what do you have faith in? Maybe there's some of you who are here today who are thinking, why can't I just have faith in myself? Why can't I just believe in myself? Why can't I just dig down deep and go wherever my heart's to? Why can't I just have faith in myself? And maybe if that's you, maybe if that's that response building up in you, um, I, I have all the sympathy in the world. In fact, it sounds, it sounds somewhat appealing. No one else that I have to trust in, no one else that I have to believe in, no one else that I have to depend on. All I have to do is depend on myself. I can be like the, the poem Invictus, the master of my own fate, the, the captain of my own soul. And I appreciate that, and I understand that, and oftentimes that's people who feel this need that they can't trust anybody else, they're not going to trust God, they're just going to trust themselves. It's because somebody in their life has let them down, and somebody's disappointed them, and somebody has uh, who they depended on in the past has hurt them deeply, and so they just think, okay, I'm, not, I'm just not going to trust anyone, and maybe that's you this morning, and I understand that. But I and I said a little bit of this last week, I don't know how you start there and you don't end up a nervous, anxious, stressed out wreck. Because if the only person that you can trust in, if the only person you can have faith in, if the only person you can depend on is yourself, then the only thing you can accept from yourself is perfection. 
And if the only thing you can accept from yourself is perfection, then you either are deluded into thinking that you live a perfect life, or you are deeply, deeply disappointed and disappointed and dissatisfied with yourself. Because you know you're not perfect, and your spouse knows that you're not perfect. And your kids know that you're not perfect. And so sometimes when the only person that you're really putting faith in and trust in is yourself, you have to convince yourself that you're really the person that you need yourself to be, and you know you're not. And so you feel anxious and stressed out and nervous and a wreck. And I think in the final analysis, there's nothing more cruel that you can do to yourself than to say that I'm the only person that I can trust. I'm the only person that I can have faith in. No, there has to be someone bigger. There has to be someone better. There has to be someone who we can have faith in who will never let us down, who will meet our deepest needs, who will satisfy our souls, whom we can truly rest in. And if you're here today, it will most likely not be a surprise to you that I believe that person is Christ. The person that you can assume that he's not going to let you down, that he's going to do what he's promised to do, that he's going to, uh, that he's going to include you, that he's going to make a way for you, that, that person, I believe, is Christ. And I, I, this morning, I want to spend our time unfolding what does it mean to believe in Christ? What does it mean to believe in Christ? What does it mean to trust him? And so we're going to start out in Genesis 15 this morning. And we're going to go 15, 1 through 6, and I hate to break it to you, we're going to jump all over the place. And so if you, um, for some of you who know your Bible index is really good, that's great. For most of the rest of us, if we don't necessarily know where everything is in our Bible and you're, you're going to, and you try to follow along, you might get a little bit confused. I think almost all of the scripture references, with maybe one or two exceptions, are put in your bulletin for you. And so if you, uh, if this morning you just want to sit and listen and go back and hold everything that I've said up to the light of God's word and examine whether or not it's in accordance with it and pulled from it, that is totally reasonable. But the, the one passage I really want to put in front of you, the one or two, is Genesis 15. And so uh, you can turn to Genesis 15 and you, you can see where we're going to be at here. Um, let me pray and then we'll get into God's word this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it gives us a sure and steady anchor. Thank you that we can really rest in it and trust in it and have faith in it and trust that you will not let us down. I pray that and I trust that your word will not go out void and that you will use it for great benefit to bear fruit in all of our souls this morning. It's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen. So to understand Genesis 15, you've got to understand Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God calls, the, God calls Abram out of the land of Ur, out of the land of Haran. And, and he does this, and he makes a covenant with him. And here's the nature of the covenant. God promises to Abraham, I'm going to give you all this stuff. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to include you. I'm going to be for you and not against you. I'm on your side. But the most important thing I'm going to give you, Abram, is I'm going to give you a son. 
Now, Abram is, he's really old, and, and so the fact that he hasn't had a son, he's lived his whole life childless, his wife is childless, so, so the, to the, the idea that God would give them a son was an amazing promise, and, and God says, here's all these things in, in the scriptures. When God makes a covenant with somebody, there's kind of expected that you will live up to the obligation. There's kind of this expectation, this implied expectation that Abram is going to keep up his end of the covenant. And so what does Abram do? Immediately, he goes down to Egypt and pretends that his wife is his sister and breaks the covenant and throws it all away. And then the next three chapters, Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 14, are unfolding the consequences of that awful decision. They're unfolding all the family destructiveness that that created. They're unfolding all the tension and all the brokenness that that created. And so we get to Genesis 15. And the strange thing is, it seems like God has not deserted Abram. Despite his terrible decisions, despite his sin, despite his brokenness, it seems like God just keeps making these promises to him. And you can, there's like cognitive dissonance because Abram hasn't kept up his end of the covenant. Why is God still going to bless him? So we get to Genesis 15 and Abraham and God have a, what I used to call in college a DTR, a define the relationship. And that's what, uh, that's what we see here in these first six verses of Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, if you read this first verse in the context of all Genesis, you see God is promising to Abram that he's going to do great things for him. And that he's going, he reiterates to him this covenant that he's made with him. And he tells him, your reward will be very great. Well, what will his reward be for? I mean, he's broken the covenant so far. And so Abram picks out probably the biggest thing in his covenant, the, the covenant that God has made for him, the biggest promise that God has made to him that has, as of yet, gone unfulfilled. And Abram asks God about it. But Abram said, O Lord God, What will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household, a.k.a. one of my my servants, will will be my heir. Abram says, God, you, you keep making these promises that I don't deserve, frankly. You keep promising me that you're going to do all this stuff for me, and yet I you still haven't followed through. You still haven't come through. You still haven't given me the the biggest object of your promise. To which God responds in verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So notice what's happening here. God is not answering all of Abram's questions. He's reiterating the covenant. And that's the key to this passage. God is saying, nevertheless, my promise still stands. I'm, I'm still going to come through. I'm still going to fulfill it. I'm still going to give you what I promise. I'm, I'm not going to let you down, Abram. And so Abram at this moment has a decision. What is he going to do? And he, being Abram, he believed the Lord, or he had faith in the Lord. And he, being being the Lord, 
counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. Or we might say that he was justified. He was counted in the covenant. He was declared to be righteous according to the obligations of the covenant. So when Abram has faith in God, he believes, we might boil it down to two things. One, he believes that God is going to do what God has promised to do that God is going to fulfill his end of the covenant, that he's going to give him all the things that he's promised to give him. And two, that God is going to make a way because Abram does not deserve this. Because Abram is not righteous according to the covenant. Abram is a lawbreaker. He is not a law keeper. In fact, when you make a covenant with somebody in the Old Testament, you are saying, I will take this curse upon myself. I will take this curse upon myself if I fail to keep it. And Abraham has failed to keep the covenant, and so he deserves a curse. And yet, nevertheless, when he believes the Lord, he's believing that somehow God will make a way for him to be included in the covenant. That God will make a way for, to deal with this curse and to deal with this problem so that he can give him the promises of the covenant. It's got to be both of those things are part of what Abram is believing. And we get to Genesis 22, and I'm going to summarize here. We get to Genesis 22, and it seems like Isaac is the solution. It seems like Isaac is the solution. God's given Isaac as the promised son. He's given him. He, God has come through on his promise. And God tells Abram, go up on a mountain, up to Mount Moriah, probably don't tell your wife about this, and sacrifice him. Well, Abram knows what that means. Abram's not a dummy. Abram knows that Isaac is going to be the one, or he thinks that Isaac's going to be the one who's going to bear the curse. That Isaac is going to be that. Okay, Abram says, okay, my sin will pass on to my son and my son will deal with it. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Abram thinks, well, God promised he's going to redeem me through my son, so he must raise my son back up from the dead. And Abram just has some faith in the Lord that he's going to make a way. And we get to Genesis 22, and God, at the last moment, tells Abram not to do it. And God provided a lamb. And that is part of the end of Abram's life. It's the end of the story in Abram that it's unresolved, that God will provide a lamb, God will provide a way, that God will make a way, he will provide somebody to bear the curse of Abram so that the promises made to Abram can be had by Abram and all of his children. Well, if we fast forward, if we fast forward to the New Testament, we see that that, that is fulfilled by Christ. This is printed in your bulletin. Galatians 3, 13 through 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So how does God make a way? How does God deal with the problem of the curse? He takes the curse upon himself. He puts the curse upon his son. He doesn't put his, the curse on those who deserve it. He puts it on the one person who doesn't deserve it. That Abram and all of his descendants and all of us are law breakers. And yet we are counted as law keepers. And Christ is a law keeper. But Christ is counted as a law breaker. That you and I deserve a curse, but we get a blessing. Christ deserved a blessing, but he got a curse. 
And so Christ stood in our place as our sacrifice, as the better Isaac, as the better Abram, so that, verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, the promises of the covenant might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through what? Through faith. Faith is how you and I trust that that is true. Faith is what that we assume that God really can be for us, and he, he can only do that because Christ was the one who made the way. Christ bore the curse. Christ stood in our place. He was nailed on the cross for our sins. And that concept that the only way that you and I can do it has to come by faith. That's not something you can earn because you're a lawbreaker. I love you. You're a lawbreaker. It's why it has to come by grace. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You say, why do I need someone to bear the curse for me? Because you can't keep the law. You can't uphold the covenant blessings by yourself. That you just you you can't fulfill the obligations of the covenant. You're not made for that. I'm not made for that. We we can't do it, but God has given us someone who can. That salvation comes by grace through faith in Christ. I, I love the definition that the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. It says, What is faith? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. So uh, it, it, the Westminster Catechism, it highlights these two postures of what it means to have faith. On the one hand, it means to rest in Christ. And Jesus himself said that in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That, that's what faith means. It means to rest in Christ. It, the, the Catechism also says that it means to receive Christ. As John says, John, says, John 1, 12-13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To rest in Christ and to receive Christ, that's what it means to have faith. It's a fundamental posture of the heart where we assume and we trust that God will do what he said he will do because Christ became a curse for us. That's how we receive Christ. Now maybe you're here and you think, okay, so what's the fine print? Seems like too good of a deal to be true. I I don't think that you can believe in Christ as Savior and not also believe in Him as Lord. Those two are, are tied together. If you want to receive Christ as Savior, you must receive Him as Lord. Which, which means that we can't put faith in the things that we used to put faith in, that, that those things can't save us, that we have to die to those things. It says it, Jesus says it this way in Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And forfeits his soul. 
Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of God is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not save, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. To, to embrace Christ means not just that we embrace him for all the, the saving stuff that he does for us, but means that we embrace him because he's Lord and he's King and he is over all. To put our faith in Christ means that we take Him not only as not only as Savior, but also as Lord. Not only as servant, but also as King. Not only as the Son of Man crucified for us, but also as the Son of God who reigns forever. When you get Christ, you get all of Christ. Christ is not a buffet table. You can't take some of Him and not others. Christ is the Lamb of God slain for the foundations of the world. And He's also the Lamb who is standing as though He had been slain. He is man and he is also God. He is, the, he is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world and he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. When you get Christ, you get Christ. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. To, to receive him means that, it means that we're no longer putting faith in these other things. We're willing to let these other things die, that we're willing to sell everything so that we get the pearl in the field. And yet, it's not the intensity of your faith that saves you. It's not the intensity of your faith that saves you. It's not the expression. of It's the object of your faith that saves you. So maybe you're here this morning, you're hearing me say that, and you're thinking, that's just a law put on me. That I, Are you telling me that I have to, to lose everything? Yes. If you want to gain Christ, you must lose everything. You're saying, okay, there's part of me that believes that, that really believes that. Is it okay to say, God... I believe, help my unbelief. Yes. How much faith must save me? A mustard seed's worth. It's not the, the intensity of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. Now, maybe you're here and you think, still, that's a lot. <laughs> that is a lot to, to have that kind of faith. What's, what's going to get me? Maybe you're at a... a uh, you're, you're, Think of it like a car salesman. What's it going to get me? What, what can I get for this much faith? Let me give you 10 benefits of saving faith. 10 benefits of saving faith. Number one, number one and two go together. Number one, that you can be justified. That you can be declared righteous. That you can be counted as a law keeper when you're really a lawbreaker. And number two, that you can be redeemed. That what is broken can be made whole. What is dead can be made alive. What is useless can be made useful. Romans 3 tells us this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That word just means sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So faith in Christ gets us righteousness. It gets us redemption. Faith in Christ also gets us peace with God. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To, to have faith means that you and I will no longer be counted as enemies of God. To have faith in Christ means that we'll no longer be counted as law breakers, that it no longer means we're under God's wrath, that we're no longer at war with God. To have faith in God means that we cannot be at peace with God. So, so faith gets us justification. Faith also gets us redemption. Faith gets us peace with God. Faith gets us eternal life. 
faith gives us eternal life. For God so loved the world, and you all know this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes or has faith, same word, in him should not perish but have eternal life. They'll live forever. They'll be resurrected. That they, they will not, in the end, taste death. They will not be left in the pit to have faith gets us eternal life. Faith gives us, the book of John tells us, faith gives us the right to be called children of God. John 1, 12-13. But to all who did receive him, who believed, or again, who had faith in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To have faith gives us the right to become and to be called and to be known as God's children, to be adopted into his family, to be called sons and daughters of God. Faith also gives us the fellowship of the believers. Ephesians 4, 4 4-5 says this, There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called, to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith one baptism. So to to have faith brings us into the fellowship of Christians, brings us into the church, and gives us fellowship with one another. Faith also gives us, according to Hebrews, the assurance of things hoped for. It gives us confidence. It gives us assurance of salvation. To to have faith means that you and I can be counted as as his children. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Faith gives us works of love. That if you have faith in Christ, you can do works of love. You can have true love for others. For for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So, So if you have faith in Christ, then you can have genuine love for others. And faith pleases God. Without faith, it is Hebrews eleven six says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So faith gives us righteousness. It gives us redemption. It gives us peace with God. It gives us the right to be called children of God. It gives us eternal life. It gives us fellowship with believers. It gives us the assurance of things hoped for. It gives us the uh, works of love. It gives us the pleasure of God. And yet all of those things, all of those things, as important as they are, pale in comparison to the most important thing that faith gives us. All of those things are wonderful. They're blessings of the gospel. And you can have those today, right now, by putting your faith in Christ. But none of them are the most important thing that faith gives us. No, the most important thing that faith gives us, the most important thing that faith in Christ gives us is Christ himself. Listen, if you have Christ himself and you don't have any of that other stuff, it's still better. All that other stuff is icing on the cake, but true faith, true faith gives us Christ himself. Paul says this in Galatians 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
this is what we read when we read Matthew 11. It says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Paul says again in Philippians 3, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead." 1 Peter 1, 8, 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Or, as perhaps the most famous chapter in the Bible says this, Romans chapter 8 describes it this way. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake? We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does faith get you? Faith gets you Christ. And to have him, to know him, to be found in him, surpasses everything else. If you have everything in the world, if you have righteousness and friends and money, and you don't have Christ, you don't have anything. But if you have Christ, and you have nothing else, not a penny to your name, not a thing in your fridge, not a drop in your gas tank. If you have Christ and you have nothing, you have everything. What does faith get us? Faith gets us God himself in Christ. That the most important thing that faith does for you is it gives you Christ. All that other stuff is great. And all that other stuff is icing on the cake. That's wonderful. But if God, by faith, just gave you a glimpse of Christ, and then you and I vanish for eternity, it would still be far better than if we got all that other stuff and we didn't get Christ himself. The, the true value of faith is that it gives us Jesus 
And what more could you want than that? That's a, that's a faith that's not going to let you down. That's a faith that when everything else is gone, when, when no one else is around you, when you're, you're going through the valleys of life, you can fear no evil. Because your God is with you. But if your faith is coming here to play church, if your faith is coming here because you, you want to see all your friends and you don't really care about all this God stuff, that faith is here today, gone tomorrow. It vanishes like grass in the hot summer sun. The, the, the true value of faith is that it gives us Christ himself, and that it helps us to behold him in his glory. Here's the best thing that I like about the Westminster Shorter Catechism, this, this definition that I read a minute ago. The best thing about the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and all you good Presbyterians know it by heart, it says, what is faith? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as what is offered to us in the gospel as he is offered to us in the gospel not as something else is offered, but as he gives himself to us in the gospel that's what faith gets that's what faith receives that's what faith rests on and that is a, a hope and a faith that will not let you down so let me apply this really fast Number one, you cannot be perfect. And that's good news because you don't have to be perfect. You cannot be perfect. You cannot be the only object of your faith. That just won't work because you will let yourself down. But the good news of the gospel is that God has given us someone who we can have, who when everything else falls away, will not let us down. And if you've never had him, you can have him right now. You can put your faith in him right now. There's nothing stopping you from doing that. You don't, it's not some formula. It's, not, it's, God, I believe, help my unbelief. You, you don't have to be perfect. It's okay that you're not. You're not fooling anybody. But you can have one who was perfect. That's number one. Number two, faith gets you all of Jesus. All of Jesus faith gives you. There's not a part of Jesus. Jesus is not a buffet table that you have to pick and you have to decide that you want some of this and not that. It's not a, no, when you put your faith in Christ, you get all of him. You get the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth, and you get the lamb who is standing as though he had been slain. You get, the, <clears throat> you get the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And you get the ascended Lord seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You get the, the Christ who was crucified for our sins and who rose again for our justification. If, if you get Jesus, you get all of him. True faith gets all of Jesus. And true faith gives all for Jesus. True faith says, Jesus, I want all of you, so take all of me. True faith says, I will take up my cross and follow you as long as you are there. 
True faith embraces all loss to gain Christ. True faith is willing to get all of Christ and to give all for Christ. I wonder if that's your faith this morning. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Let everyone consider whether or not he is in the faith. Does that describe your faith this morning? Is it, is it, 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 could you describe yourself this way? No, I'm not talking about the intensity of your faith, because it's not the intensity of our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith. But maybe you're here and you've been putting your faith in your own ability to do church, and you've been putting your own your faith in all the things that you do for Him and for all the boxes you can check, and your faith is really in yourself and it's not in Him. 2 Corinthians tells us that we should examine ourselves to measure whether or not we're really in the faith. And the goal of that is so that if we are in the faith, if our faith really is in Christ, so that we can feel the joy of assurance. Because it's not, it's not the fact that you and I can prove that we are faithful to God. God knows our heart. It's not the fact that you, as if you got, and I can earn enough brownie points to make God happy. No, the faith that saves is the faith that is put in Christ. It's the object of our faith that saves us again. It's not, it's not the intensity of it. And so, Christian, I, I want to encourage you this morning, as we are expecting the advent of Christ, and as we are looking forward to his birth, and we're looking forward and we're singing these Christmas songs, I want to encourage you to let your faith be rekindled this year. As you meditate on the promises come true, as you reflect on, the, uh, on Jesus come to be with us, as you reflect on Emmanuel, let your faith be rekindled this year that you and I might truly know what it means that God is for us and not against us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who keeps his promises. We thank you that you are a God who does not let us down, who does not abandon us, who will not forsake us. We thank you that we can be forgiven. Father, I thank you that, that you give us your Son in the gospel. that you give us all of him. Father, we praise you. We're so thankful that you give us righteousness, that you give us redemption, that you give us fellowship with other Christians, that you give us all these other things, but the best gift that you give us in the gospel is your son. Father, would you help us to rest in him and to receive him, to reach out and grab hold of him, to taste and see that he is good. And so, Father, now as we come to sing, would you give us the savor and the taste of Zion? Would you prepare our hearts as we look forward to the advent of your Son to see him for all that he is? So at the last, when we are standing in our flesh, though we are rotted away, we will know that our Redeemer lives. Amen.